now to conclude what we started earlier, chapter 16 of the book of Acts, verse 25, to the end of the chapter. And hear God's word. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, uh, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do not... Or do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took uh, them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized So uh, now when he had brought them into the house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying, let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying "The, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for the testimony of the beginnings of this church in Philippi. And we ask you that as we are a church, long established, 50 years, that you would encourage us by the story of the beginning of one of the prominent churches in the early church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we see, uh, the letter was going out and Paul uh, determined to retrace uh, some of his old steps to strengthen old churches. But having done that, Paul and his companions now venture out to new ground. They set out uh, having sought to uh, strengthen old churches to establish new ones. That's where we find ourselves now. And so the the second missionary journey has begun. But it takes an interesting diversion to get there. The last stop we read of as he's retracing his old steps uh, in the first missionary journey was Phrygia and Galatia. That's verse 6. Likely uh, the, the towns of Iconium and Pisidian Antioch. And we find Paul there wanting, it seems, to venture westward into what was called uh, Asia by a natural route leading through Colossae and next into Ephesus. We know that Paul later gets there. His desire was to go there at this point, but instead he was diverted northward by another route. 
and ultimately northwestward on to the seaport of Troas. And this happened as a result of a double hindrance by the Holy Spirit. Verses 6 through 8. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to reach or to preach the word in Asia. After they came uh, to Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. There's the second hindrance. So passing by Mysia, they came to Troas. And there in Troas, Paul receives a positive direction, so not a hindrance, but a, uh, a positive encouragement uh, from the Spirit through a vision. Verse 9, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so now it was clear that Paul was being called to evangelize Macedonia, not Asia. For the present, his desire was to evangelize Asia, but that would come later in the plan of God. God was calling him to Macedonia. And so Paul and his companions were supernaturally directed in the way they should go. Supernaturally, I'm saying they were receiving revelations such as we cannot expect in our own day. The question of divine guidance comes in here, but that's not really my interest interest because this was something obviously that was greater. And what Paul was experiencing supernaturally, the immediate testimony of the Holy Spirit as to which way he should go, should not surprise us, seeing that Paul was an apostle. He was also a prophet. He, uh, he So was Silas. And so both of these men were capable of receiving immediate uh, uh, direction or revelation from the spirit three times we read of that in this account in the case of the first two we do not know the form it took we only read that they were hindered they were forbidden by the spirit only in the third case do we have an indication of what happened a vision occurs to paul And it's a moving picture. The man there pleading for help. Come and preach to us. Come and tell us the good news. And what other conclusion could these men draw? But that the spirit was calling them to preach the gospel to them. As we read in verse 10. Now after he had seen the vision immediately. We sought to go to Macedonia. Concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so having set sail from Troas and stopping briefly at Neapolis, they arrive at the foremost city of Macedonia, namely Philippi, verses 11 and 12. Therefore, sailing from Troas, uh, we ran a straight course to uh, Semothrace and the next day came to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, the leading city of Macedonia. We also find... In verse 10, the first of the we sayings indicating that Luke uh, was picked up by this traveling party along the way in Troas. And he joined their company. Suddenly the narrative uh, for the remainder of this chapter takes on the perspective of a first person account And it was here in Philippi that Luke tells us of three converts, as he liked to do. He's done that before. When he tells us about the gospel coming to a place, uh, he often tells us about uh, particular conversions. And that's what he does here. 
he gives us the account of three particular conversions. And from this we get a picture of the kind of church that was formed there. And so that will become now the focus of the sermon. The three converts in Philippi. We begin in verses 15 through 17 with Lydia. We read uh, that this company in the absence of a synagogue... Uh, nevertheless, kept their usual practice of on the Sabbath day seeking out Jews to evangelize them. And so we read in verse 13 on the Sabbath day, we, Luke now being part of the company, went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now, Luke doesn't tell us what they spoke of, but uh, we have little difficulty imagining that they spoke as they did before of Christ is the fulfillment of scripture. And so they pointed to the Old Testament scriptures and they pointed to Christ as the fulfillment and uh, of the dawning of a new covenant and so on and so forth. But the focus from this group was upon one woman in particular named Lydia. It's clear that she was a woman of some status and wealth since we read of her household, apparently which became the base of the Philippian church, as verse 40 indicates. In verse 40 we read, So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, uh, and when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. So it was there that the church uh, began to meet. It was a house at least large enough to fit, the very least, a small church. As an aside, uh, this is not the last time in the history of the church that we read uh, of preachers preaching to the households of prominent ladies, let us call them, and receiving support from them. As, for instance, in the case of the First Great Awakening, the Countess of Huntington. Now, I've read about her. Uh, in uh, the biography of George Whitfield, I did not realize that uh, Banner of Truth actually has a biography of that woman herself. Well, when I think of Lydia, I think of her. A prominent lady who was interested in Christianity and who supported the work. But what stands out here, as in other cases, is the nature of her conversion. And so as we look at her conversion, let us look at the details as Luke is sure to record him. And let us see that while many features of her conversion are the same as others that we've read of before, and these others we'll read of after, there are also differences as well. When we speak of the work of conversion, let us bear that in mind. We have the case tonight of three conversions, and some things are the same, some things aren't. Let me focus for a moment on the differences As Jonathan Edwards says in the religious affections, experience plainly shows that God's spirit is unsearchable and untraceable in some of the best Christians in the method of his operations in their conversion. Nor does the spirit proceed discernibly in the steps of a particular established scheme, one half so often as is imagined. Or as William Guthrie observes in the Christian's great interest The Lord does not always observe the same plan with men, but has many ways of converting sinners and drawing them unto Christ in their effectual calling. And in this, William uh, Guthrie does not deny, nor do I, 
that the Lord has an ordinary way of converting sinners to himself. And hence, there are common features in every conversion. And that's because salvation is one and the same for all. But there are still, this is what Guthrie is saying, this is what uh, Edwards is saying, this is what Luke is telling us. There are many paths by way, uh, or by which rather, the Spirit effectually calls sinners unto himself for salvation. God has many ways of calling men to himself, or in this case, two of the three being women. The first thing we read is that Lydia heard us. She was listening to what they had to say. But Paul or Luke is clearly saying something more than she heard the words. She was listening when he says, you see, that's the first thing. A certain woman named Lydia heard us. He's clearly saying something more than that. He's saying something like Paul was saying in. In Romans chapter 10. How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear with not, without a preacher? And the kind of hearing he's talking about is the hearing of faith. He says in verse 16, not all have obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? They hear, but, well, they really don't hear because they don't believe. So then Paul says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Well, here's an instance of a woman who really heard, who had ears to hear. That's what Luke is telling us. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That that is what occasioned her conversion. The words were not just uh, coming into her ears or filling her ears. They were sinking deep into her heart. They were changing her. They were working faith in her heart. She was told of Christ. And found by the preaching that she was able to receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation. Christ was offered to her in the preaching and she desired him for herself. She heard the preaching. How did such faith come to be in her heart? Well, by the preaching, yes, she heard, but also because of what the Lord was doing for her by the preaching, we read next that the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Now that uh, is a way of speaking of effectual calling. The good things of Christ were offered to her. She freely and gladly received and accepted them as her salvation. But this was not her own doing. She didn't that day decide to be a Christian. She didn't say, you know, I agree with what you're saying, Paul. I think I'm going to become a Christian. The reason the word had such a powerful influence on this woman so that uh, this. This uh, Gentile who worshipped. The God of the Old Testament that day became a Christian is because, as Luke tells us, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by, by Paul. God gave her a heart to believe. God caused the word to sink deep into the soil of her heart. God caused her to receive the things that Paul offered to her in the preaching. God used the preaching that day to open her heart and thereby worked saving faith in her heart. God used the preaching of Paul to effectually call this sinner to himself. As the Shorter Catechism says concerning effectual calling. Uh, 
Uh, in this way, I'm picking up uh, halfway through. In this way, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. You see, Christ is offered to us in the preaching, but not all have believed our report. What makes the difference? It is the working of faith in the heart whereby we are persuaded and enabled to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel by the Holy Spirit. Now, let me say something else about her conversion. To set this in contrast to the others that we will later read of, there is something ordinary about this. I would never call conversion ordinary. There is always something extraordinary about God calling a sinner to himself. But in contrast to others and its outward manifestations in the course of her life, there was something ordinary about this. There wasn't an outward dramatic change. She was already, we read, worshiping God. But now she saw the truth about Jesus and she was ready to believe. And conversion is often like this. In the case of some, it it revolutionizes their whole existence. In the case of others, it appears to be a very slight change outwardly. It's a sudden yet quiet work in the heart. The heart settles on Jesus and rests in him, yet not accompanied with so great an outward change as is seen in others. And as we'll see in the case of others, even uh, in the narrative here. The next thing we read, as a matter of fact, is how her household was included in this. And this isn't the last time we'll read this. We'll read this as well in the case of the Philippian jailer. She was baptized along with her household. And we have here a case of uh, what are called famously the household baptisms that we read of in Acts. We will find it later again in this chapter. And we we also uh, read of it earlier in the case of Cornelius. I will not, uh, at least for the purposes of the sermon this evening, stay with this point, but perhaps uh, at a later time we will return to it and consider the significance of it. But finally we see how these men uh, were begged by her to stay in her home. This is the first notable instance of hospitality that the Philippian church later became famous for. We have here a picture of true Christian fellowship that is Uh, The fruit of the gospel. It's the fruit of conversion. There is always when a sinner is converted unto Christ. A desire to fellowship with other Christians. You see she didn't say. Well I've heard the message. I've received it now. Uh, You might go on your way. No she desired. She desired to hear more. She desired to fellowship with them. She begged them to stay with her. This is one of the. Unmistakable marks or fruits of conversion. This is how J.C. Ryle puts it. He quotes the Apostle John. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. And he says a man who is born again has a special love for all true disciples of Christ. Like his father in heaven, he loves all men with a great general love. But he has a special love for those who share his faith in Christ. Like his Lord and Savior, he loves the worst of sinners and could weep over them. But he has a peculiar love for those who are believers. He's never so much at home as when he is in their company. He feels that they are all members of the same family. 
They are his fellow soldiers fighting against the same enemy. They are his fellow travelers journeying along the same road. He understands them and they understand him. They may be very different from himself in many ways, in rank, in station, and in wealth, but that does not matter. They are his father's sons and daughters, and he cannot help loving them. Well, that's something that we'll see as we go on, that despite the differences of these people, and these three people were very different, uh, they were joined together in Lydia's home at the end of the narrative. There was this new and sudden desire to fellowship with one another. We come to the next uh, instance of conversion, and that is uh, of the slave girl in verses 16 through 18. I'll read those verses again. Now, it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, these men are servants, the most high God who proclaimed to us the way of salvation. And this she did many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out of her that very hour. This is undoubtedly the opposite of Lydia. Lydia uh, was, as I say, a more outwardly ordinary conversion. But here is uh, about as outwardly a dramatic conversion as uh, we read in the Bible. We read of her complete bondage, not only to Satan, but to her masters. She was not only enslaved uh, to Satan or to the spirit, but she was a slave to men. But we also read in the in the short time, just three verses of her complete and sudden deliverance from this bondage. In the name of Jesus, she was set free. So I can hardly think of a more dramatic conversion than that, again, as I say, in all the Bible or in all the history of the church, this certainly stands as one of one of the most remarkable conversions in the long history of the church. Now, I realize and you can hardly read a commentary without them saying the same. We don't read that precisely. Luke actually doesn't say that she was converted and she joined the church. But but the idea uh, is is it's it's uh, natural and it's obvious given the scope of the narrative. He's speaking of conversion he is placing her alongside these other notable conversions that of Lydia that of the Philippian jailer Uh, it, it seems clear that that day she became a Christian and so let us notice in her her case how God works in some in the case of Lydia she was already worshiping God she had a good life And God brought her along in her journey finally at last to what she was seeking. She found Jesus and she became a Christian. But here was someone who was as far on the other side of the spectrum as you could possibly imagine. And let us be fair and say it was not just Satan who so troubled her, but it was God himself who allowed her to pass through this terrible soul crushing bondage. I cannot say why he does this in the case of some. Why was her life so hard? Why wasn't it easier as in the case of Lydia? God had given this poor girl almost completely. I would say completely, but obviously it wasn't completely because she was delivered. She was capable of being delivered, but she was as close to being completely lost as anyone had ever been. God had allowed this girl to suffer greatly at the hand of Satan. But here again, we see it only takes a single word from God effectually uttered. Here again is her effectual calling 
to break the bondage of Satan. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And so she was delivered. She was not only brought out of bondage to Satan, but she was brought into fellowship with Jesus Christ and his father and the saints. She was no longer walking in the darkness as a slave. She was walking in the light as one who had been freed. Again, along with Guthrie, we place the emphasis on effectual calling. These words were effectually uttered. They were powerfully uttered. They effected something in her life, something powerful, something dramatic, even her conversion. Do you see what makes the difference when we think about how it was we came to this point where we are Christians fellowshipping together? What makes the difference is not the starting point. God has many ways of effectually calling sinners by the gospel. But the point is, just as soon as he does, so the sinner is saved completely and brought into this fellowship of light. The deliverance from sin is complete. The bondage to sin and to Satan is broken. Now, if you look at what this girl experienced in her her conversion... It's obvious that she was conscious of it, that she could no longer do what she once did. She didn't even pretend. Suddenly she became worthless to her masters. She no longer thought of herself as a slave to Satan. But could you imagine her acting as though she was one who was still in bondage to Satan? We can thank God that she didn't. And yet, how many Christians sadly act worse than she, going on as though still in bondage to sin when Christ has delivered them? And so let us see once more, salvation is the work of God in the soul of man. It may happen to a man as he's seeking God, as in the case of Lydia. It may happen when one is in the most terrible bondage one could imagine. But in whatever state one uh, finds himself What Luke is telling us here is that the name of Jesus is powerful to save. Far more powerful than the spirits and the sins which bind us. I'm reminded here of the demoniac who was in danger to himself and to others. We read of him as well in Luke's account in the Gospel of Luke. But who experienced the end of the demons raging and thrashing about his soul just as soon as Christ uttered the words of deliverance. How peacefully he sat, quiet and in his right mind. How ready he now was to follow Jesus. I easily imagine something similar happening here. But let me just say this. Do you realize, beloved, that Christ is still the same today? He is still the same powerful savior to deliver sinners out of bondage to sin and to Satan. That he is able by a single word to break the chains which bind us to sin. The worst bondage you can possibly imagine. His name can break it. I wonder if in your most shameful moments you are too ashamed to utter his name. But I also wonder what would happen. If you did, hear me when I say he is powerful to save. He is powerful to deliver us from the worst kinds of sin and bondage. 
But come with me last to the Philippian jailer. We read of him in verses 19 through 34. And let us skip the details of uh, these men and their imprisonment, Paul and Silas, and focus rather on the real import, and that is the conversion of this man, the Philippian jailer. We see a man who was thrust into a sudden crisis by what he saw and experienced. At one moment, he was ready to take his life, thinking the prisoners had escaped under his watch. And in those days, if that had happened, the only thing to do was to take your life, and so it really wasn't an unreasonable thought. Well, at one moment, he was ready to do that, and at the next, he was powerfully moved to seek salvation. Do we hear uh, in his words, famously uttered, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Do we hear an echo of what the Jews said on Pentecost? Peter preaching to them, they simply cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And we see as well they were cut to the heart. I won't say they were ready to commit suicide, but they were uh, utterly cast down and they were utterly and thoroughly convicted of their sin and their need of salvation. Here we read of this man, not that he was cut to the heart, though I'm sure he was, but he was trembling, falling down and asking, what must I do to be saved? And thank God answering that question was no difficulty for these men. I hope it's no difficulty for you. If anyone ever asks you that question, I wonder how easily could you answer it? Well, here's the best answer you could ever give to that question. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Christ freely offered to sinners. And if Christ is freely offered to sinners, do you think he was the only one they wanted to tell about him? No, take us to your house and we'll tell everyone there as well. Yes, let him believe and also his household. Again, we think of Peter preaching to Cornelius in his home to all who would listen. It's a similar scene here resulting in the baptism of all who were there. Let all who have ears hear and believe and drink from the waters of life. Let all come who are thirsty. Christ offered freely unto sinners the free offer of the gospel. Yes, and let them, having believed, be baptized, verse 33. And he took them at the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. That's the jailer washing the men. And immediately he and his family were baptized. And not only that, but having been baptized, let them enjoy the fruits of Christianity. Namely, once again, Christian fellowship, as they did in Lydia's home, now in his home. Now, when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Once again, we see how dramatic conversion can be. A man is at the point of suicide. He's ready to take his own life. And if he had that very moment, he would have been in hell. But just then the light breaks in, dispelling the darkness. Suddenly he understands. Suddenly God graciously and powerfully and effectually works faith in his heart and fills him with grace and joy and believing. The man once ready to die is now ready to live. 
let me say again, as I've said so many times, what a difference the gospel makes in the lives of men. How thoroughly it changes us. We who were filled with despair are now filled with hope and joy and peace in believing. We who were once far off are brought near. And we who were once at odds are brought into a gracious Christian fellowship. And so the last thing that we see, having seen these three conversions, is the fellowship that was enjoyed in the church in Philippi. We have a very brief picture here at the end of the narrative. Very little is said, but we could compare that with what we read in uh, the letter to the Philippians. It seems uh, by the end of the narrative that Paul was able to secure a measure of peace for the brothers who were then meeting in Lydia's house. That's why he said, I want you to bring these men back. I want to speak to them. So that what happened to him and to Silas would not happen to those who were meeting in Lydia's house. And yet... We can also imagine from the picture uh, that is painted in Philippians that this peace which he secured was not to last, for he speaks in Philippians chapter 1 of the things which they were uh, granted, he says, by God to suffer for the name of Christ. The kinds of things we can imagine that Paul and Silas experienced, some of them in the Philippian church were experiencing as well. We also see how this joyful fellowship was marred by disputes, as we read in Philippians chapter 4, of the dispute between Euodia and Syntyche, and also the need for humility in chapter 2. And so no church is perfect. And yet still we must realize, if we've read uh, the Philippian letter, that there really was a remarkable fellowship which was formed there in many ways. This was a remarkable church. And so it does not surprise me To see the trouble that Luke takes in his narrative in Acts to tell us of its origins. Really in in chapter 16 of the book of Acts, we have an account of the origins of the Philippian church. And it's possible and even likely that Luke himself remained there. Because when we come to chapter 17, we see it goes from we to they. And the we is only picked up when they come back through the same area. And it's chapter 20, I think. Luke was impressed with this church, so should we, at the work uh, of grace which God was working there. But the great point that we should see is how the gospel changes us. And as a result of that changing work, how it unifies us and how it creates fellowship. And the great need there is, if you go from uh, the conversion and the beginnings of this church to the Philippian letter, what you see is... Paul impressing these truths once again upon these people. In other words, if I'm saying that the gospel changes us and if it's the gospel that unites us, there is great need for us to remember this ourselves because it's possible always, beloved, to forget these things. And so as I close, I close with the words which Paul uttered to them, reminding them of the lowly path that Christ walked and that he was calling them to walk as well. Therefore, he says, Chapter 2, verse 1 of the book of Philippians. If there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. 
Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Amen. And let us return praise to God by standing together and singing hymn 60 or Psalm 67 B.